Before I begin, as we celebrate together this glorious Easter Sunday, I would like to offer the following prayer. Let us pray. O God, who by the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, grant that we who have been raised with him may abide in his presence and rejoice in the hope of eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be dominion and praise forever and ever. Amen. I have to confess to you that if I were the author of the Gospel of John, and I'm thanking God that I'm not, I would not have crafted the story, the resurrection story, the most important story in the entire gospel in the way that John did. Sure, he gives preeminence to his role as the beloved disciple, but even more importantly than his own role, he puts someone front and center who by any consideration would have been considered the least likely. Not only the least likely, the least desirable. Surely, particularly in that first century milieu, would have been considered the least reliable witness. Who's that? Mary. Mary Magdalene. The outcast. The one with the dubious reputation. The one who seemed to be on the sidelines but never in the rest of the gospel particularly included. And yet, she is the one. As the story begins, she's walking to the tomb. It is Sunday. It is before daybreak. So what she's doing, in fact, walking alone before daybreak is extraordinarily dangerous. She could have easily have been robbed or kidnapped but she makes her way to the tomb. And when she arrives, she doesn't know what to do except just to stand and to grieve. The one whom she loved is dead. And even this opportunity to be able to, in essence, pay respect, to honor him as one who, knowing her role, is to go and to mourn, is abruptly taken away because when she gets there, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is open. She doesn't know what to do except just run. And so what does she do? She goes back and she finds John, beloved disciple, and Peter, indicating probably she had to go from one house to the next. And the two of them took off like a rocket running down the road the beloved disciple making a point of letting us know was he was the one who got there first. And Mary soon follows afterward. John sort of peers in, doesn't quite know what to make of the scene. And of course, bull in a china shop, Peter barges right into the tomb, breaks all the mosaic laws about not wanting to be near dead people or anything like it. But it is because of their witness that we see the astonishing scene of grave clothes 
rolled up. The particular cloth that covered the face folded neatly. It's mystifying. This isn't grave robbery. If you have been reading along in the Gospel of John, you will remember that when Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and put in the tomb, that what would have happened is that he would have been wrapped in literally what the scripture describes as 100 pounds worth of spices. And then linen. And so if there was to have been some kind of grave robbery, particularly a robbery that would have stolen the corpse, everything would have been everywhere. There would have been no effort to try to in any way be neat, just grab and go. And yet here's this orderly scene, no even mention of spices lying around in great clumps which is what would have been in these neatly folded grave clothes. They're mystified. They don't quite know what to say or do either. And so they go back home. It's Mary again who stays. In fact, the Greek describing where she stands makes the point of the fact that she stands fast right there on the spot. The literary, literary point is she is immovable. She will not be thwarted with the last responsibility that she has, which is to stand and honor the one she loves by being present at the gravesite. But she's sobbing, not just for his death, but for the cruelty of what she sees in front of her. Not even in death is this man, this honorable man, to be honored. But then she takes a step in and she looks inside and to her astonishment, angels, one at the head, one at the foot, often interpreted later as sort of representing the two angels that are on either side of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the two Seraphs witnessing, in essence, by their presence, a new atonement, a new forgiveness. They ask her in the tenderest of way, why are you crying? There's no reproof in it at all. It's a kind word. It is an effort to somehow assuage the deep, deep, deep agony of what it is that she feels. They knowing, of course, that Jesus was alive. She talks about not knowing where they have laid him. And then Jesus himself appears and he asks the same words. And of course, in her grief, she, she isn't thinking clearly. She swollen eyes and tears. She's not even seeing very clearly thinking he's the gardener, John says. Have you taken him away? If you have, can you please tell me where you have laid him? And Jesus says one word. It is her name, Mary. 
And immediately, she turns. Something has reached her past the deep, deep place of grief. She knows the voice. She knows how he says her name. And in, right out of her, teacher, because of course that's what she called him. She embraces him. But then Jesus says, no, don't hold on. Don't keep touching. Go. It's a commission. Go and tell my brothers. And she takes off like a shot. And at the end of the reading for today, she bursts in, finds these men gathered, and tells breathlessly the story. And notice what she calls Jesus. She calls him Lord. Belief has happened. Resurrection has taken place. This isn't the end of the story. It's just the end of a chapter. A new story is beginning, a story of a live and risen Savior. And the most unlikely group of men and women telling others that what they thought was a criminal is in fact the Son of God. Would I have made Mary, as Aquinas later calls her, apostle to the apostles? <laughs> No, I would want her to have created the most reliable witness possible. I would have maybe have had Master Nicodemus show up on the scene. But the incredible intimacy of detail, the most likely of leads in the story, only points to its historicity. We're hearing a real story here a description of something that in fact actually happened, something that changed the course of human history. And I don't know about you, I need those details. I need them today. I need to know that God would choose the least likely, the most disqualified, to be able to be one who receives and who declares because in the midst of the upheaval of what it is that we are knowing around death and around a shattered economy, around things that are just beyond any of us that we could ever imagine, at least in our lifetime, I need to know that in the midst of me trying to get it right, but not always doing so, my misbehavior, my not getting it the way I should, is not disqualifying me in any way whatsoever from the faith that God has planted into my soul. My mistakes do not deny the resurrection. But that instead, it is the resurrection that upholds me even in the midst of my mistakes, even in the midst of my quavering belief, even in the midst of dealing with circumstances for which, how do I deal with these, oh God? Knowing that our task in the midst of this is to allow the breath, the wonder, the deep intimacy of the resurrection power of Jesus to hold us in the midst of all circumstantial uncertainty, 
It's, it literally strips us down. We're not gathering to see sing Jesus Christ is risen today. There are no great sprays of lilies on the altar. There's no choir singing to us. The best we can do is YouTube videos of presentations and celebrations of Easter past. We're meeting in homes at best, and even then tiny little groups of people, or Zoom meetings. There is no breaking of bread or, and drinking of wine. There is no toasting the celebration of a new age. All we have, quite honestly, is the testimony of Scripture and that which God has already planted in our souls by his death and resurrection. Because Paul says, the very same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So what I can celebrate today is in the midst of a lot of losses, extraordinary uncertainty. Your guess is good as mine in terms of the future. I know who holds me. I know who holds my heart in the midst of all that is divided. There is not just division. There is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that gives me the capacity to step forward, even in the midst of often being afraid, because I know fear does not have the last word. The resurrection of Jesus does. And because this happened so long ago and continues to be true, I know that he will take you and me by the hand and lead us forward. Not in our own confidence, certainly, but in the gift of what he is giving us even now again as we say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. It is in that that we hope. It is in that that we celebrate. So today, greet with joy. Greet with joy the resurrection of Jesus. And know that in the midst of all kinds of truths, this is the truth that is the key to everything. Jesus is risen. Alleluia. Amen.